Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of The Mod Pod, where authors from the latest issue of Modern Optometry read their articles, so if you're short on time, you don't have to miss out. Last month was all about glaucoma, but this month is more of a variety pack, as we'll be covering the topics of presbyopia, dry eye, and practice management. And if you make it to the end, you'll hear Mod's associate editor, Katie Herman, interview one of our board members. To start things off, let's hear from Mark Schaefer, who's in private practice at My Eye Doctor in Birmingham, Alabama. His article talks about how to handle the Plano Presbyo, because patients who have never required vision correction may need to be managed more carefully than long-time myopes and hyperopes. Presbyopia is one of the primary reasons patients come into our offices for an examination. I've heard it every which way, from my arms are too short or the font is too small, to patients having to take screenshots of menus and zoom in on their phones in order to read better. When the patient sitting in your examination chair is already wearing some type of vision correction device, the conversation about how to deal with presbyopia seems rather simple. It essentially consists of an upgrade in technology. The conversation sometimes isn't so smooth, however, when the patient has never worn glasses or contact lenses. So what's the best way to handle the Plano presbyope? For most emerging presbyopes who have never previously needed vision correction, This may be their first eye examination, or at least their first examination as an adult. This is a perfect opportunity to showcase our skills as eye care providers and convey to them the importance of regular eye examinations. Take the time to thank these patients for choosing you to be their first significant experience with an optometrist and explain what you can do for them. Use the technology in your practice to educate patients about the many ways you can help diagnose diseases that would go unseen without an examination. Emerging presbyopes may be in denial or any of the other stages of grief because presbyopia is a sign of aging. Today's presbyopic patients want to live active lifestyles and don't want to be slowed down by their visual needs. As we talk about the people in this category, remember that each patient who sits in your examination chair leads a different life. That's why it's so important to get a thorough history and gain an understanding of what each patient wants to do on a daily basis. I like to ask these patients what they do day to day instead of focusing on work or hobbies first. This allows them to tell me what matters most to them. It also spares me an embarrassment of later uncovering news of a recent layoff, an inability to work, or other social issues that can affect my rapport with a patient. The recommendation that you make at the end of an examination must address whatever you discuss during the visit. If there is no strong correlation or relationship between your recommendation and the patient's main complaint, he or she will head to an optical, whether that's in your practice or elsewhere, confused about and doubting the results. The patient has chosen you to be his or her expert, so speak like one. Make sure you understand your patient's needs by listening and asking questions about his or her lifestyle and also find out what motivated him or her enough to come to you. Decide on that treatment plan, explain alternative options, and then listen to that patient again. From there, be willing to make changes and adapt to each individual patient's needs. Don't limit your decision to just one solution 
as many patients will need multiple combinations in order to fit their various activities. Remember that your patients likely have social networks of many other individuals navigating similar issues. They may even come to you talking about friends who have run the gamut of treatments. So let's discuss some of these treatments that these friends may have mentioned and examine how each one stacks up for our patient. The, I have a friend who wears those dollar store cheaters. Let's be clear. This self-treatment is probably the worst option for patients. Use this opportunity to talk about the downsides of over-the-counter readers. For example, they're not made to fit one's visual needs. They merely magnify objects. For patients who bring this up, consider prescribing single vision glasses for near use only. Explain to the patient that new lens technologies allow him or her to have clear and comfortable vision with anti-glare and blue light protection for those who stare at computer screens all day. Consider this option for patients who never get up from their reading material or computer. This scenario is growing more common these days with the dramatic increase in working from home, virtual school, social media use, etc. The I have a friend who had progressives and hated them. There are hundreds of progressive lens models available, so saying that someone hated them is like saying you don't like all SUVs because you had a bad experience with one make and model. Progressives have numerous features, options, and designs that can make a big difference. Highlight the flexibility of progressive lenses to this patient who needs to go back and forth from far to near without changing his or her vision correction. Explaining to patients that they can wear progressive lenses as needed instead of full-time helps ease them into spectacle wear. Letting patients decide when to wear them can increase motivation for success. Consider this option for someone who is likely to be mobile throughout his or her day and needs to see at multiple distances within a short period of time. The, I have a friend who wears contact lenses for near and far. With today's multifocal contact lens technologies, it's getting easier to satisfy these patients' needs. Just make sure you discuss and set those realistic expectations. Consider this option in patients who need full-time back and forth vision, but who don't wanna wear glasses. I have a friend who wears a contact lens in one eye only. Monovision contact lens wear can be a good option, but it's typically better reserved for the early stages of presbyopia because of that small degree of induced anisometropia. A patient considering monovision contact lens wear must be educated on the depth perception issues and the need to adapt to the vision it provides. Some patients do not tolerate monovision at all because they find the vision too difficult to handle. Consider this mode in patients who do not do well with multifocal contact lenses, but want a similar type experience. Don't forget to educate your patients with presbyopia about what's coming next. But also don't neglect to tell those patients who are pre-presbyopic that there will soon come a time when they will need a solution for their near vision. These discussions give us a chance to talk about a new category of treatment that will be coming in the very near future, presbyopia correcting eye drops. The landscape of this patient base will change dramatically with the introduction of these therapies. The Plano presbyopic patient doesn't have to be a difficult patient. Taking the time to understand, educate, and recommend options with compassion and competence can make this patient's experience smoother and minimize the disruption to his or her day-to-day -day life. For a visual of the five stages of grief, or to find out what to do when plan A doesn't work, find Dr. Schaefer's article online at modernod.com. Now let's switch over to some dry eye talk. 
Rebecca Miller, an optometrist at Brooks Eye Associates in Plano, Texas, is going to explain what you need to know about incorporating autologous serum eye drops into your dry eye protocol. We've seen the exponential increase in dry eye disease, and the number of patients affected is expected to rise in the years ahead. Not only will we be seeing more patients with dry eye, we'll likely be seeing and treating the disease in younger patients due to decreased blink rate with the use of electronic devices and computer vision syndrome. While we don't have a cure for dry eye, we do have more treatment options than ever before. Many patients with severe disease may not achieve adequate relief from traditional treatments, such as artificial tears, warm compresses, punctal plugs, prescription eye drops, or eyelid treatments. When these important mainstays of treatment don't do the job, additional therapies such as autologous serum eye drops, also known as serum tears, may be needed. Our body's natural tears support the ocular surface with growth factors, proteins, antioxidants, and lipids. These factors are also found in blood serum, but are lacking in artificial tears. Dry eye reduces the volume and quality of tears produced, causing the surface to become damaged, which results in chronic, painful, burning, gritty-feeling eyes. Research has shown that serum tears are more effective at relieving the symptoms of dry eye while healing the ocular surface compared to artificial tears alone. When you consider prescribing serum, several factors should be discussed with your patients. To maximize the quality of serum, recommend that patients increase their water intake about four liters a day for men and three for women. Incorporate clean eating into the diet for about a week before the blood draw, which means consider the greasy cheeseburger that may show up as fatty deposits in the blood, yielding poor quality serum. I've actually had patients get frustrated with the lab saying, this batch isn't working as well as the last. While the processing lab should let patients know if the blood sample is poor quality and simply collect another time, it's a great reminder to our patients and ourselves that we really are what we eat. When serum tears are being produced, the first step is the blood draw. Then it's allowed time to clot, goes through the centrifuge, filtered, and finally diluted to your prescribed concentration. Typically, the serum is ready in about 48 hours for patients to pick up. The most commonly asked question you'll get is, when will I feel better? Most patients immediately feel the difference with serum compared to artificial tears or prescribed drops. Patients most commonly tell me that they feel soothing. Significant symptom improvements is going to come about the two-week mark with regular use, while maximum benefit may be closer to six to eight weeks, which is typically when I see patients back for any treatment adjustments. The average concentration I start with is 20%, with one drop every two hours for three months. Working with serum allows the concentration and dosage to be titrated. This maximizes and customizes each patient's treatment. At each visit, I ask the same questions. What percentage of improvement have you gotten? Are you happy with how you see and how you feel? Based on their responses, you can adjust the concentration and dosing schedule. You may find that some patients need a higher concentration for adequate relief. Just keep in mind, the higher the concentration, the fewer vials the patient's gonna receive from the lab. So for example, if you go up to 40% concentration, they may get a two-month supply instead of three-month supply. In other patients, you may see so much improvement in signs and symptoms that you decrease the dosing frequency to better fit their lifestyle. I recommend maintaining treatment for at least six weeks before any significant changes are made. Of course, the outlier in this scenario would be patients with significant epithelial defect 
they may benefit from an amniotic membrane or antibiotic eye drop treatment. Whenever prescribing serum, consider the dynamic nature of dry eye. I have several long-term patients who do pulse doses throughout the year, which means maybe they use serum for three months in the winter. When their eyes are drier, then they return to their regular treatment throughout the year. While pulse doses are effective and great for some cyclic dry patients, those with chronic symptoms due to systemic conditions, Sjogren's, rheumatoid arthritis, or other autoimmune or inflammatory disorders will likely benefit from long-term continued use of serum tears. Of course, with ongoing use comes the question of cost. The average price for serum tears is $300 for a three-month supply, which may be more affordable than other treatment options. Keep in mind, insurance typically doesn't cover serum. Whenever prescribing the tears, make sure your patients are aware. This isn't your typical treatment. They need to follow all of the instructions to ensure the best results and avoid contaminating the drops. The open vial needs to be refrigerated. That preserves the healing components and slows the growth of any potentially harmful bacteria. All the unopened vials should be stored in the freezer for up to three months. After three months, any unused vials should be discarded. Adverse events are rare. However, it is important to be aware this is a non-preserved product. Vials can become contaminated with bacteria or fungus, potentially exposing the patient to an infection. As with all treatments, there's some level of risk to consider. For most patients, the bigger risk lies in not treating the damage dry eye has caused. There are varying perspectives on using serum tears for patients with positive serology testing for infectious diseases such as hepatitis and HIV. Each lab will have its own blood donor guidelines that may disqualify some patients from supplying their own blood for the drops. In those cases, they may be able to use donated blood from a family member or use some from a blood bank. Autologous serum eye drops are not FDA approved. Simply because they're a unique blood product, they can't be mass produced for FDA approval. Serum has a long and successful history of treating dry eye, dating back to 1975. I've been impressed with the improvement patients have achieved while using serum tears. It's the ace up my sleep for complex cases. If you want to get started, reach out to your local compounding pharmacy and ask if they make autologous serum eye drops. Each pharmacy may use a different lab to draw blood and have its own process for blood drop-off. By incorporating serum tears into your therapeutic arsenal, you'll be able to offer more comprehensive treatment options, allowing you to retain these patients rather than sending them elsewhere for help. Do you offer serum tears in your clinic? If not, why? If you do offer this advanced treatment option to patients, Dr. Miller shares patient guidelines for using them in the print and online versions of her article. So be sure to check that out if you're looking for something to copy and distribute to patients. Next up, we have a little treat. The next article is by the owner of Scenic Eye Care in St. Paul, Minnesota, Solomon Gould. He's going to give some tips on how to hold staff meetings like a boss. Here he is with five pearls for improving employee relationships and eliminating wasted time. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Team unity and cohesion have never been more important. The COVID-19 global pandemic has had a devastating impact on the foundational solidarity of many eye care practices and on the psychosocial needs 
of their employees. The early mandated shutdowns swiftly humbled us all and brought to the surface the reality of our vulnerability as small business owners. Since those days, subsequent resurgences have highlighted the importance of having a game plan and an optimally effective team for sustainability and success. Remember, without your team, you have no business. Like the ringing of Pavlov's bell. For some employees, the mere mention of the words staff meeting leads to an involuntary cringe response. One survey found that 90% of employees reported daydreaming during their staff meetings. And 73% reported that they use meeting time to do other work. Additionally, it is estimated that $30 billion a year is lost in the United States alone because poorly executed staff meetings prevented employees from working on more important, inspiring, or revenue-generating tasks. Many of us as business owners are guilty of what I call strategic inertia. That is essentially doing the same thing we have always done because it has always been good enough. Let us all set aside our egos and appreciate the value of going back to the drawing board for guidance on staff meeting practices and methodologies. In this article, I share proven success strategies that I have developed over the years, both leading my own teams and consulting for more than 40 other private practice owners. Mind you, I have revised these strategies over the years at least a dozen times, and I will continue to do so for reasons that I will share with you now. My first piece of advice and my first success strategy to all private practice owners when conducting employee meetings is to get out of your own way. Practice owners spend countless hours preparing for, executing, and then fretting over the performance of their staff meetings. We continue to repeat this process every week, every month, or however frequently we conduct our staff meetings. This just simply does not have to be the case. A telephone survey of more than 1,300 business owners and managers and their employees found that though 79% of the owners and managers said that the meetings they initiated were extremely or very productive, only 44% of employees agreed to this statement. Hands down, the best way to improve your success with staff meetings is to solicit anonymous feedback after every staff meeting. There are numerous free or paid software programs that can be used for this purpose, including, but not limited to, SurveyMonkey. My second piece of advice to private practice owners is to simply learn about your audience. If you parent your children all in the same way, regardless of their age, gender, or abilities, your efforts will be futile at best. Similarly, if you foster your employees all in the same way, regardless of their professional background, age, culture, and ethnicity, you will earn a gold standard medal in the work hard, not smart contest 
your employee retention will be nominal at best, and your Indeed account will become one of your highest line item expenses. Understanding the importance of inclusion in the workplace pays exorbitant dividends. The best book I have ever read on the subject of workplace culture and fostering an ideal workplace for individuals of all backgrounds is Organizational Behavior, Human Behavior at Work by John Newstrom. The main takeaway from this book is an understanding of the cultural biases for the human behavior of people of different backgrounds. With this knowledge, one can work smart, not hard, and foster a workplace environment within which anyone would want to work. Staff meetings are the ideal time to shine in this area. When you recognize and understand the differences in motivation and behavior among people of different backgrounds, your employees will feel validated and more highly energized to engage and to commit to the success of your meeting agendas. Taking the initiative to learn the characteristics of different generations is one of the best ways to ensure success in leading and working with people. It is without a doubt the primary reason I have been as successful as I have. Childhood sets the foundation for how people perceive the world, how they communicate, and how they show commitment to their employers. Did you know that baby boomers, i.e. those born between the years of 1946 and 1964, prioritize stability and a paycheck over any other attribute of their employer? How about the fact that employees of Generation Z i.e. those born between 1997 and 2015, change their jobs almost every 12 months because they do not feel that their workplace provides them with enough personal development. Did you realize that the Generation X employees, those born between 1965 and 1976, are your most loyal employees as long as you are honest and transparent with them? Finally, were you aware that millennials, those born between 1977 and 1995, are actually split into two categories? The me-lennials, aged 25 to 31, and the mega-lennials, aged 32 to 43, each mirroring the generation above and below, respectively. As a practice owner or manager, Learning the fundamental differences between the generations will undoubtedly set you up for success in all scenarios of leading your employees, including and especially during staff meetings. My third piece of advice to all private practice owners is to be in tune with your team. I learned early on the valuable lesson of checking in with employees on an individual basis whenever one acts out or is otherwise out of harmony with the rest of the team or the business's policies and procedures. Subpar behavior or work performance may be an indication that there is something more to the story. It could be that this employee is simply the target of, well, the inevitable in-office politics. It could also indicate 
that there is something more serious going on in this person's life. Approaching these employees individually not only shows your skills as a leader, but also opens up the door of opportunity to prevent the loss of a good employee who is simply going through a rough patch. My fourth piece of advice to all private practice owners is to use technology to your advantage. Today, we have a plethora of technologies to enhance the quality of our staff meetings. In contrast to the days when we drew graph on paper, and yes, we were excited when we had colored pencils to portray our business analytics. Today, we have software programs that can automatically draft tables, display month-to-month -month variances, and chart other important key performance indicators, or KPIs. We can now also record meetings via software programs such as Zoom and Google Hangouts, and then share these links with employees who were unable to attend. Performance evaluations can now be conducted and then airdropped within seconds. Company goals can be shared and updated in real time via Google Drive. That said, I encourage employers and managers to be mindful and respect the different generational preferences noted above and to tailor interactions to each employee individually. My fifth and final piece of advice to all practice owners is that efficiency is transparency. Efficiency is key to successful staff meetings, especially if it is instituted consistently. The best way practice owners can set themselves up for success through efficiency is by sharing the meeting agenda with the team in advance. When this is done, employees can be better prepared to contribute to the meeting because they have had the time to formulate their thoughts and substantiate them with relevant examples. As many of us can recall, there is almost nothing worse than staking a claim in a meeting and not being able to recall in that moment an example from our experience. I know I've been there. Additionally, setting the agenda and communicating it in advance ensures that the meeting remains within the confines of the agenda. Too often, practice owners and managers preside over never-ending and everything but effective meetings simply because no specific agenda was communicated in advance. What did you think of Dr. Gould's article? Even if you're not a practice owner, there are little nuggets of information that can surely benefit anyone. If you've made it this far in the episode, then you're about to learn more about one of your colleagues. Maybe you already know her, maybe you don't, but either way, you're bound to find out something new. So let's hear Roxanne Cohen's answers to our questions about her career path, working with her husband, and more. All right, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for being our up close this issue. Um, are you ready to get started? I am. Great. When did you know you wanted to become an optometrist? What influenced you to choose this career path? So there's a number of experiences that influenced my career path. So first of all, I'm pretty nearsighted. I was nearsighted since I was seven years old. 
And I remember getting my first pair of contact lenses and I thought, wow, this is the best invention because I can see without any glasses on my face. And then in college, I was diagnosed with inflammatory orbital pseudotumor and I was managed by eye care professionals for about a year. And this really piqued my interest because I was seeing these eye doctors because they could not figure out what caused it. And it's, to this day, they still don't know what caused it. Um, but obviously I'm all healed up, you know, and, and then I started volunteering at the hospital. I was actually stayed at in the ophthalmology department. And I was able to observe eye exams and surgeries. And then I even got a job at an optometric practice up in Canada for a couple of summers. And they were able to show me, you know, lens surfacing, call me in and look through the slit lamp and show me a lot of great things. So this really, you know, changed my way of thinking. I was like, wow, I, I do want to become an eye doctor. This is so interesting to me. And I thought, again, contact lenses were the best invention possible. What made you want to specialize in contact lenses and ocular disease? So I attended the New England College of Optometry and I was accepted into the clinical scholars program. So I was able to get a lot of clinical experience. But then in, I attended also the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in my fourth year, where I was able to learn a lot about ocular disease. And I knew so much about ocular disease at the time, and I didn't get really a lot of experience with contact lenses. And even when I was interviewing, I kept asking the same question, hey, am I going to see any contact lenses at this residency? And they would say, no, you're not. So I said, you know what, I need to do contact lenses because I was pretty weak at, with contact lenses at that point. Mm-hmm. So... I did a residency in cornean contact lenses at Pacific University. And then when I saw the patients there, I was like, wow, you know, the patients are traveling from so far away just to come see these doctors. And it's pretty life-changing. You know, I I felt such gratitude from the patients. And again, they were amazed by, for the first time they could see for their life in their lives. So this is why I just love what I do because we are changing lives. Yeah, that's so great. So what advice do you have for other optometrists looking to open their own practices? And what challenges did you face and how did you overcome them? Oh, so opening your own practice, that's pretty challenging, but (laughs) rewarding, right? The biggest challenge, it's not the patients, it's actually hiring the right staff. So if you have the right team, what you want to do is you base it on personality and attitude, and then their skills hopefully will come. (laughs) That's the first thing you want to hire based on personality and attitude. Um, Then, you know, selecting the frame lengths when you open a practice, that's pretty daunting task too. It's like, what do you pick? So I think a good thing you want to do is, you know, work with a consultant, find out a demographic in your area, you know, ask other eye doctors as to what they think was successful. Um, Also, you know, investing in an edger, everyone's like, oh, I, I can just send these jobs out. You can save so much money by cutting lenses in office. If you can find the right lab person and cut lenses in office, it'll be a huge time saver. It's gonna be convenient for the patient. It's a huge profit center too for your optical. Um, Working with a consultant or a buying group or having a great mentor, someone you wanna work with. So we worked, we're a vision source practice. So they've helped us with our competitive pricing on materials. I also work with a consultant with power practice and they're able to guide me when I have certain things that come up and I was like, hey, what do I do in this situation? Because as you know, our world is very dynamic right now. And they're, they're the ones who's keeping up with all the different changes in the world today. Yeah, that's all such great advice. Um, so how did you meet your husband? And what are the pros and cons of working in the same practice? 
Yeah, so I met my husband at Baskin Palmer, where we both received uh, training in ocular disease. And, you know, we're actually still married, even though we work together. <laughs> so, you know, we love the Orlando area so much with all the Disney attractions and, you know, Universal SeaWorld. We have it all here. And we said, wow, there's so much room for growth. And this was over 20 years ago. And the area has exploded and it's still exploding. I think with COVID, more and more people are moving to Florida too because also of the weather mm -hmm. yes <laughs> so there's a ton of pros as to why we work together for example sharing practice duties you know I used to do payroll at first he then I handed it over to him and now you know we've gotten a lot bigger so we have a company doing it this time uh, we can get second opinions we have an associate so we can even get third opinions too so that's really great for the group practice the only con I would think is you know, just trying to go on vacation, it's really, really tough mm -hmm. because if we both leave, you know, our patient load is cut by two thirds. Yeah. So that's a really tough um, part is, you know, working together. But for the most part, we get along so <laughs> really well. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are a fellow of the International Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control and the Scleral Lens Society. Why did you pursue these fellowships? So first of all, for myopia management, you know, I'm a high myope and my husband's a high myope and I knew my kids were doomed. They're going to be myopes too. So that's, <laughs> I, I, I didn't want my kids being like me growing up, getting thicker and thicker glasses. Mm -hmm. So I said, this is one of the reasons why I want to learn about myopia management, but not just for my kids, but for the kids in my practice too. And I want to give them the best possible care I can know everything about it too. So I also did these fellowships because I wanted to learn, to grow, to challenge myself. And we know knowledge is power and I want to be, to be the best. Patients come in, they can ask you anything and you have to be on your toes as to answer every single question because these patients are very knowledgeable. So if they've done, done a lot of research and they check your credentials, believe it or not, because I would always ask them, how did you find me? They said, I saw you on the internet. I saw you're talking about this. You know, so it's really important that you know, you're very well educated. They saw, you know, wow, you got your fellowship. That's really different than someone who didn't. So for all those reasons, you know, it's my knowledge, giving them the best care I can. And also it, it grows our practice for all those reasons. And the last thing I want to say is that I was able to establish and build a huge camaraderie with other doctors who we, we can share ideas. You know, we come up with new ideas and we try to teach other doctors too. And that that's priceless. Now for just a fun question, what are some of your hobbies and how have you been able to maintain them during the COVID-19 pandemic? So some of my hobbies always included martial arts. You know, I like taking down people, <laughs> but, <laughs> but there was too much contact. So basically I had to stop that. I haven't been at the gym for, I think, 10 months now, and I really miss it. So on the side, I was also doing a lot of uh, personal uh, weightlifting with a trainer. So I actually go to this, his garage and we work out <laughs> for about 20, 30 minutes, really hardcore. And the other thing we've invested in because we weren't able to go on vacation and we live in Florida is we got some jet skis. So <laughs> yeah, you know, with the weather being so great here, I went just recently this weekend and I'm able to you know, my boys, they love wakeboarding and extreme tubing. Now, I haven't tried that yet. I'm still learning to drive the jet ski, 
but that's one of the latest hobbies that I've picked up recently. Wow. Those sound really fun. <laughs> yeah. You should come down and we'll take you out. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dr. Cohen. Well, thank you so much for being our up close um, featured this issue. It's been great. <laughs> thank you for having me. That concludes this episode. We hope you'll meet us back here again next month. In the meantime, stay in touch by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Keep up to date by visiting iwire.news and check out itube.net for our other podcasts and video series, which are all featured under the optometry tab. Thanks for listening. <laughs>